There are many important milestones in the life of a person. There's a really big milestone right at the beginning of life that we celebrate for the rest of our lives, that our family gathers around us, everyone is paying attention to us. Now, you might think that I'm talking about birthdays, but I'm, I'm talking about to something that happens at birthdays usually. Usually, what most often happens at, on birthdays is crying. Is crying. On the first one and many birthdays after that, there's a lot of crying. We are born and almost immediately, before we can even form a word, we have an inarticulate question. To anyone who will listen, why are you doing this to me? This is the question. Why, why all this? Why is all this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? We answer the infant's question, not with words, but with a touch with skin, with eyes looking down as if to answer the little eyes looking back up at you. I can think of many other audible milestones, so milestones that we say and we hear. I've I've been thinking about those milestones this week. A baby's first word is another big milestone. A baby's first attempt to ask a question, which usually sounds a lot like crying. (laughs) usually sounds like crying, my eyes can see the object, and my brain wants that object, but I cannot make my body move to that object to get that object, and even if you bring me that object, I can't make my brain close my fingers and hold on to that object, and so I cry. There's a milestone. There's a milestone. A lot of little audible milestones in our life. And all of these audible milestones, they build up to perhaps the greatest milestone of the first five years of life. What do you think I'm going to say? What do you think I'm going to say? Why? The question, why? At some point, most of us get into the questioning phase of growing up. The sky is blue. Why? Uh, because the way that the light bounces off the atmosphere, I think, or something like that. Why? This pattern continues until you say, go talk to Greg. He might have an answer for you. Greg, Greg's the science guy. I don't have questions for that. Why? Incessantly, over and over again. Peter Kraft was once asked, why are so many philosophers weird? And he answered, about 90% of all people who have ever lived have had children, and about 10% of famous philosophers have. Children are most effective educators. They keep us sane, Kraft says. They do this by almost driving us insane. If you don't have somebody whom you love so much that he almost drives you insane, it's very hard to be sane. I think that's a great question. Why are philosophers weird? You could say the same thing about pastors. It's not just the innocent question why that can drive us sane. It's not just that question. Pretty quickly, kids start asking questions that my brother, who is a lifelong educator at this point, I think I can call him that, they start asking what he calls sideways questions. Sideways questions. What does he mean by that? These are questions that are really slightly veiled accusations or else statements, questions that are weaponized. They're weaponized to test the boundaries, right? To test the boundaries of the authority or the house. 
which is almost always, the weak spot is almost always dad. So they go, can I have dessert? That's a question to test a boundary. And like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, we quickly learn that mom cares about things like health and eating our vegetables and other good habits. So after mom says no, we can then go ask dad. He's the weak link because, you know, I'm testing the fence, the electric fence, all right? So there's my opening uh, audible milestone illustration. 167. 167. I've been doing a lot of counting this week. There are 167 questions in Matthew's gospel. At least 94 of those questions on my count, and depending on uh, whether or not you count all, how you count all the questions within the parables, but at least 94 of those questions are by Jesus. They're questions that he is asking. Jesus is asking most of the questions in the gospel. And most often when Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question. He responds with a question. When a child is learning to read, they ask, what does that say? Dad, what does that say? It is way easier. It's way easier simply to answer their question, to read it for them. But if you want to th them to learn, you respond. What do you say, parent? What, what does that say? What does that say, child? Let me help you sound it out. And then you slowly help them sound it out for themselves. Jesus was a lover of questions. Not because he didn't have answers. He has all the answers. He has all the answers, including perhaps his most important answer in the whole gospel, which is in our gospel lesson, which we hear the answer every Sunday when we gather. Right When we come to worship, we hear this summary of the law, his answer. Jesus loved asking questions because, because he wants to invite his disciples to grow up, to think for themselves, to learn. Like most philosophers in his day, Jesus was Socratic. What does that mean? He was a teacher, not primarily a preacher, although he did preach. He was a teacher. Most of his ministry wasn't on the mountaintop monologues. It was along the way dialogues. It was conversation. It was back and forth. It was question and answer. And most often it was question and question followed by question and maybe an answer in there. This is what Randy Newman, not that Randy Newman, old people, uh, not that Randy Newman, but this is what a theologian Randy Newman calls rabbinic evangelism. Rabbinic evangelism. This is how rabbis train disciples to think, to think for themselves. Questions, and particularly answering questions with questions. And this style of debate, this ancient method, is sometimes called pill-pull. And it is still used today in Jewish schools. It's an ancient method, and we should use it more. We should use the questioning method more. But that's another sermon. It's no wonder, then, that the Gospels are filled with questions. Why? Because Jesus is a rabbi. He's a rabbi. What are the Gospels if they are not the accounts of Rabbi Jesus walking and talking with his disciples? 
answering their questions. A lot of them are not very good questions. And he questions their questions, answering the questions of passers-by along the way. He enters into synagogues arguing, and this is the language that is used of the Apostle Paul, reasoning together in the synagogues over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles. He argues or he reasons together with other rabbis, questions with questions, leaving people astonished over and over again in the Gospels. Everywhere he went, everyone marveled in response to the questions he asked, to the answers he gave. Everyone eventually shut their mouths, shut their mouths because of him. And all of this dialogue reaches a fever pitch in our reading. In Matthew 22, this is the mountaintop of questioning. There's a lot of questions, but this is... This is definitely the peak. This is where it comes to a point. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He has gone in the temple and cleansed the temple. And in the midst of several collections of his public teaching and parables, so before and after this dialogue, there's a lot of parables. And Jesus answers a private eschatological question from his disciples. But here, here, in the middle of all this, is a fierce back and forth with every religious intellectual in Jerusalem. All the Anglicans show up, all the Pentecostals and the progressives and the fundamentalists, they all come with their astute theological questions. Now, you guys get the joke. That's not actually who came. It was Pharisees and Sadducees and an expert in the law. In other words, a Bible know-it-all. You guys know those kind of people. Um, They all come asking questions. They love to be engaged in sort of this rabbinic dialogue. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. This is what they were taught to do from their youth. But when the king came in to look at the guests... You can imagine everyone who shows up to this debate. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? This was our gospel reading, the end of our gospel reading from a few weeks ago, and he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the end of the last parable before this debate. They should have been humbled, in other words. They should have been knocked flat on their face before the king. They should have but they weren't. Jesus welcomes every questioner in the Gospels. Many times, many, many, many times, like an infant crying out for her mother's arms, men and women, Jews and Gentiles would come up to Jesus with childlike cries, with inarticulate questions, where are you, God? Help me, help me. I don't even know what to say. Won't you help me? They came as those who are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table. In other words, they came with their wedding garments on, with the humility of the king. Jesus' questions in response to their questions brought many to their knees. And Jesus, every time, 
lifted up their head. He lifted up their head and he invited them to feast at his table. This is what he does in the gospel. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the theologians did not bring their their questions with this garment, with this garment of humility. They asked sideways questions, twisted, veiled questions, traps, veiled accusations, like children trying to find the weak spot in the armor of the parents' resolve, right? They're finding, they're testing the boundaries. They tested Jesus over and over again and centrally in our text. And most of the time, Jesus answered these kinds of questions, especially these kinds of questions, with a question. But at the peak of all of this, of all of this argument, of all this back and forth, their final question, Jesus actually answers it. He doesn't respond with a question. Hear it again from verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, the the greatest theologian among them, the, the greatest understander of the law, the greatest Bible scholar asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, with your whole self, with everything that is you, with your heart and with your soul and with your mind, with your emotions and your thoughts and all those speechless, deepest parts of you, with all of you, love the Lord your God, is his answer. But don't ever separate your love from God with your love for everyone else around you. You cannot have one without the other, Jesus says. And so he asks this singular, the singular question is asked, and he gives a double answer. It goes together. One commandment, two actions of love bound together. This is his answer, but I'm not so concerned with answers this morning. I want to pay attention to the questions. I want to ask questions. So after Jesus' mic drop, of a final answer to one final question, Jesus turns to them. He turns to these hard-hearted scribes and Pharisees, and he rebukes them over and over again. In chapter 23, he curses them even. But before he gets there, Jesus ends with an unsolicited question at the end of our gospel reading perhaps the biggest question of all. In other words, I would say that this is finally and fully the only question that matters. Look with me at verse 41. He asks it in a sophisticated way, and I'll translate it here in just a little bit. But here's the question, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
and this is the most quoted verse in the entire New Testament. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, Isaiah said. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. They shall shut their mouths because of him. If then King David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This is the question. And let me translate it more simply for you. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? From the very first sentence in this gospel and in the New Testament, this is the question. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the son of David? Is he the son of Abraham? Is he the son of God? This is the question, and it's not implied, it's asked over and over again. I cannot answer this question for you. You must answer it for yourself. This is the question. One thing you notice towards the end of the gospel, as if in judgment upon everyone who reads this gospel story, Jesus slowly begins to stop asking questions. It tapers down towards the end. Questions are asked like this. Why do you trouble this woman, Jesus says, and a while later in Gethsemane to his sleepy disciples, so could you not watch with me one hour? And then a little while later, Judas says, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. There's not a whole lot of dialogue in the rest of this gospel. One sleepy disciple enraged at the betrayal of Judas. He wrestles a sword away from the great crowd who comes with swords and clubs and they surround Jesus and he fights. He fights back and Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he asks three final questions. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, and he asked them his final question. Have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? A final question that lingers in the air. And then Jesus, except for a few brief, simple answers, he shuts his mouth. No more questions. Have you no answer, he's asked. What is it that these men testify against you? What further witness do we need? Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Tell me his name. Are you the king of the Jews? 
Do you not hear what they're saying about you? What evil has he done? Question after question, false accusation after false accusation, Jesus stops asking questions. He shuts his mouth, and in the silence, he left them. And he leaves you and me in silence because he invites us to answer, to respond to his final question. Who do you say that I am? This is the question. Don't leave here this morning without answering this question. Don't be a coward and avoid the question. Read the Gospels. Actually read them for yourself. Don't just assume what they say. Read it. Don't grab a sword because you're afraid what might be there and fight back. Ask your questions and listen. Listen. Don't wash your hands and avoid answering, who do you say that I am? This is the question. Trust him. Believe him today. Stop avoiding the question. This is what we're all good at doing. Stop trying to be a Bible know-it-all and come like a child and cry out with simple infant-like faith, I'm scared and I'm hungry, will you hold me? Believe. Believe and be baptized. You don't have to know it all. Hopefully, on the other side of that, we will help you grow up. We're going to help you grow up. We will help you ask good questions and learn to answer those questions for yourselves. But you don't have to know that here at the beginning. You don't have to know right now. Simply believe. Respond to this question. Jesus is with you always to the end of the age. He invites you, and the question hangs in the air throughout time and the ages for us. He invites you to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? This is the only question that matters. Jesus asked one final question before he died on the cross, but not to us. He asked his father a question. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The questioning God, the one who answers questions with questions, with his last breath, the Son of God asked his father a question. The son of David, who is lifted high as if on his throne, and all of the blood has, has left his body, it's pooled on the ground below him in his glory. Jesus asked a question that King David asked a long, long time ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David went on to say, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
I read every question in the Psalms this week, and there's a lot more than 167. There's a lot more in the Psalms, and I don't have a number for you, and I don't have a lot of answers, but I do have one more invitation to you from the Psalms, and here it is. After you believe, don't stop questioning. After you believe, don't stop questioning. Many people say that Jesus was forsaken by his father upon the cross. And let me, let me say, it's for good reason. Because that's kind of what Jesus said. That's, there's an implied statement in this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many people say that Jesus, and let me be clear here, I don't think this is a bad, erroneous interpretation necessarily. I just don't agree with it, okay? So it's not a sinful thing. It's not a sinful thing. But many people say that Jesus is asking what my brother would call a sideways question. In other words, a question that is really meant to be a statement. And so they would say, Jesus is saying, Father, you have forsaken me. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying with his final question. With his last energy, Jesus asks a question of his father, but I think his final question is really another open-ended invitation for us. After this gasping question, he cried out and he died. He died in a place that many of you are, are this morning. You've got no energy left. It feels like your last gasp. You're experiencing the betrayal of a friend or many friends, deep emotional pain. Maybe it's unanswerable physical pain, impending death or a diagnosis. And you cry out to God and he doesn't seem to be listening. He doesn't answer. He makes you wait. With his last breath, he leaves you hanging. He doesn't answer, but he is listening. And I want to invite you by faith to trust me and trust the scriptures. I don't think the son is saying that God the father has forsaken him. Why? Because the psalm doesn't start, it doesn't stop with the first clause of Psalm 22. And so even as Jesus gives his last gasp, I think he's inviting us to read the rest of the psalm. Hear this from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They believed, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. 
you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Don't stop questioning. I think that's the invitation. Wait. In that place of silence, let your cry, let your question hang in the air. He is listening. He has listened. He will continue to listen. He has not forsaken you, although he might not answer, and certainly not immediately, your father is listening. God the Son has fully entered into your pain, into your waiting. He has borne your sins upon the cross, and he has cried out for you when you are breathless. I think this is the invitation. Don't stop questioning. My favorite living questioner was asked this question. This is Peter Kraft in a class on philosophy and literature, right? This sounds like the most nerdy thing you could be in there. And they were reading uh, the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. If you're nerdy and you've been able to make it through that, I'm so, my hat's off to you. I'm, someday I'll get there. He was asked this question, what's the hardest question you were ever asked? What's the hardest question you were ever asked? Kraft tells a story in answer to this question. It takes the reader and it takes him up. This is what he says about the book. By showing him both the heaven and the hell in his own soul. Dostoevsky is full of darkness and sin and evil and depravity and hate and despair and insanity. But it's even more full of brilliant light and passionate love and saintly goodness, especially God's mercy. A girl, he says, a girl in the front row who never asked a question throughout the entire course came up to me after the course was over and she said, do you believe all this stuff? I mean, all the stuff Dostoevsky believes? Kraft responded, yes, I do. About the love of God, I mean, about how crazy much God loves us stupid sinners. Kraft responded, absolutely. Why? She said. Why do I believe it? Because, no, I'm not asking for arguments. I mean, why does God do it? Why does God love us so much? I was stumped, Kraft wrote, and stunned by the question. So I did what clever cowards do, and I avoided the question. I don't know. Ask me next year, maybe I'll know then, like a good philosopher. I love that. It was a stupid answer, but she took it so seriously that one year later, she showed up in the same classroom after the final exam where I was teaching the same course again. Do you remember me? Yes, I do. You asked me that great question about the Brothers K after the last class, and I told you to come back in a year, and here you are. You're still asking that question, I see. You're still asking. Wonderful. I am impressed. 
So, do you have an answer? No. I don't think anybody will ever have that answer in this world. That's one of the reasons we've got to get to heaven. She smiled and said, okay. Who do you say that I am? That's, that's the question. Trust him. Believe him. Believe in Jesus and be baptized. That's it. That's it. And then don't stop questioning. Keep asking. Keep coming back. And believe. And believe again. And keep questioning again. In the valley. Ask your questions. And then ascend to God and worship. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God has not forsaken you. Keep asking. Keep believing on repeat over and over again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.